turn to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians and the verses 22 through 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now you'll recognize that this, for the most part, is the same outline. So what I want to do is to go back and just catch up by way of review and then uh, finish out what I, was, what I started last week. Christianity is extremely practical. It is not something you add to secularism. It is extremely practical. So that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians tells us what it means to be a Christian. The theology of our position in Christ. But the last three chapters tell us how to live. How to take the theology of our position in Christ and make it apply or apply it to the practical day-by-day living. And it is not possible for us to, to live the way verses chapters 4 through 6 tell us to live without being filled with the Holy Spirit. A person will not live out what he, how he's supposed to live, how to treat his wife or how to live out in his home or the wife to her husband unless that person is living consciously under the control of the Holy Spirit. What we've been after in chapters 4 through 6 is to discover the the principle of mutual submission so that the whole theme of interpersonal relationships is based upon mutual submission. And he illustrates it with the family so that the wife is subject to her husband. And the husband is subject to his wife in that he loves her with a sacrificial dying kind of love like Christ loved the church. No greater example of submission than that. And the children are submissive to their parents, obeying them. But the parents are submissive to their children, for they do not provoke them to anger. So in the beautiful interpersonal relationship that is pictured in the home, there is mutual submission, and that's what he's after. But with regard to to function, that's the essence and the nature, with regard to function, there must be authority and leadership. With regard to function alone, there must be authority and submission. And so he gives us the role of the wife and the role of the husband in that that picture of authority and submission, in that role of authority and submission. And we notice that the word to be subject or subject means it's a military term. It means to line yourself up under. And it's the picture of one voluntarily placing himself in the order that God had ordained. And in that order, the husband is the head and the wife voluntarily lining herself up under his authority and the children under the mother and the father. And with regard to function and practice, that is the God-ordained way. So we've come to the role of the wife. It goes all the way back to the Genesis record. And there in the book of Genesis, God said that 
that they are to cleave together and become one. There is that intimate dynamic, that intimate vitality. But that does not uh, uh, rule out the authority and submission. For in Genesis 2.24, he says that the husband shall rule over you. So it means that even though there is the intimate vitality that exists between husband and wife in oneness with regard to unity and workability, the wife fits herself under the leadership of her husband, not as a slave, but as one who is provided for and cared for and and secured by her husband. And we looked at some parallel passages, and I just want to you to write those down in the one, two, three part of your outline. And I want to tell you just briefly what each one said in case you missed last week. First of all, there is, a, there is Colossians 3.18. And what Colossians 3.18 says is this. There is a phrase that's used there that the wife is to be subject to her husband as is fitting to the Lord. And that term there means as is legally binding. It means that it is the accepted law of society that society was established upon the divine principle that the husband was the leader of the, of the home and he was the head of the wife. It was the divine principle on which society was based and built. Colossians 3.18. The second is 1 Peter 3, 1-6. Now what he's saying in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6 is that the wife is to major and focus not on the outward appearance, on the outside, but she's to major and focus on the inside and that she's to develop a gentle and quiet spirit. And by her gentle and quiet spirit, she wins her husband without saying a word. She's got this sorry, no good guy, you know. She's tempted to stamp repent on the bottom of his beer can, you know. Put notes in his sack lunch. You better turn, buster, or you'll burn. She doesn't do that. She'd like to, but she doesn't. Rather, with a gentle and quiet spirit, she wins him. She may win him without a word, but she focuses upon the inside, the inside. There is a third parallel passage. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 3 through 12. If you're making notes, this is what that says. There's the illustration there are about the woman wearing a veil, the women wearing veils. In the Corinthian church, there were two kinds of women who didn't wear veils. There were prostitutes. They didn't wear veils so the men could see what they looked like. And there were feminists who did not wear veils as a symbol of, uh, of, of rebellion, a symbol of revolution, a symbol of protest. And so he's saying in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 12, that the woman is to take the place of submission and should not violate that place. And then there is the passage in Titus 2, 3 through 5. It's a marvelous passage. You need to, you need to read it, study it. It says that the older, the mature women, that is the women whose children have already left home, their role is to teach They're to teach the younger women. Amazing there. That the mature women are to teach the younger women what their priorities in life should be. And there are two priorities that the the older women are to teach the younger women. These two priorities are these. Love your husband. Love your husband. It's agape love. It means 
the highest kind of love that seeks his welfare, husband, the wife, to love her husband, and to, secondly, to love her children. She's to be a children lover. So that her goal in life is to love her husband and to love her children. And in so doing it, verse 5 of this Titus passage says that she honors the Word. To reject that role is to dishonor the Word of God. Now we came to the final, we've come to the final parallel passage. It's the one, and you put your little marker there in Ephesians 5, and you turn with me to the book of Proverbs. Now, I want us to look then at a, at a teaching in the book of Proverbs concerning the role of the woman. It seems to me that every woman here tonight, rather than turning this off and saying, I wish the preacher quit picking on us, it seems like every woman, especially every young woman, would want to find out what God's Word has for her as, with regard to, his, to her role in life. Let me tell you, if the woman finds the role that God has for her and lives it out, she's got it made. Okay, chapter 31, beginning verse 10. Now we're going to give you several, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, so you might want to jot these down. You might not. You might want to write your uncle, Tom or Susie there, but do something on that page. Verse 10, her value an excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels, the most precious commodity that a man will ever possess is, a, is an excellent wife. Now, if I have this precious commodity worth more than jewels, then it seems to me that I'm going to focus the greater amount of my energy and 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 my interest upon that precious commodity. I've never heard a man, dying man, ever say, I wish I'd spent more time in my business. I've never heard a dying man say that. What I have heard dying men say is this, I wish that I had loved my wife better than I loved her. I wish I'd spent more time with my wife and my children. Her value is more than any possession you will ever have. You have a virtuous wife, and that is the most precious commodity. Her value is above jewels. Secondly, her trustworthiness, verse 11. The heart of her husband does trust in her, and he will have no lack of gain. What that means is he's not afraid to let her have the checkbook. She's not going to wipe him out. He trusts her with everything that he has, even his name. He trusts her with everything she has, even his name, his checkbook, and whatever. Third, her supportiveness, verse 12. She does him good, underline does. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Now what that says is that she doesn't sit around saying supportive things to her husband like, you're the greatest, you're the greatest hunk, you know, go get him, tiger. She doesn't sit around saying that. She goes into action. She gets into action and she does supportive things. Her interest is in the support of her husband. Her productiveness 
is verses 13 and 14. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like a merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She's productive. She produces. She puts something into this marriage. She brings something to it. She increases the value of this thing called marriage. She's productive. Her sacrifice is verse 15. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. Now what that says is this, that she's more concerned about her family than her own comfort. Can I say it again? She's more concerned about her family than her own comfort. Her primary concern is to serve her family. Now in an age where there is this rush toward a you know, career and equality. The primary concern of this woman is to, con- is to serve her family. Her enterprise is verses 16 through 19. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She works out at Nautilus. She senses that her gain is good, her lamp does not go out at night, her enterprise. Now what it, notice that her home is the, is the base for this operation, but she's planning for the future. And so from the home, she engages in these enterprises. Now look at her priorities in verses 20 through 21. Why is she so enterprising? There's a marvelous progression here, and you need to see this. What are her priorities? How... How is she enterprising? Verses 20 through 21. She extends her hand to the poor. Now watch this. What she does in the enterprise is so that she might have something to give to those who do not have. There's no selfishness here. And she's not working out of the home as the basis of her operation in order to add to her own needs and the needs of her family first. She's doing this so that she can help the poor. Secondly, in the progression, she's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Now you need to understand what that means. The scarlet clothing, the scarlet robe was the most expensive. I mean, it was like uh, Hart, Shafter, and Marks, the Hebrew children. It was, I mean, it wasn't something you'd buy at Levine's or Stein's. It was the best suit you could buy. The children were dressed well, you see. So that when she went to work out with a home as her base of operation, she did it in order that she could help the poor first. And then she wanted her husband and her children to have the very best clothing. And they were well dressed. And then she thought of herself, look at this. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Fine linen and purple. She covers herself. Now, 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 now that was an unusual thing, as a matter of fact. When you look at these pictures of, of, of the biblical times and you see women dressed up in purple, that wasn't the way it was. I mean, just the, just the rich wore the purple. The rest wore burlap kind of stuff. And so she was an enterprising person who, who saw that the poor were cared for first that her children and her husband had the very best she could give them, and then she clothed herself and she looked like a queen. There's something to be said here about people who think it's something spiritual about going around, you know, dressed in, you know, rags. 
If I got on nice clothes, I won't be spiritual. It's, 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 it's foolish. And when she was enterprising and had that, she got something for herself. And she started this little business out of her home. Look at her reward, verses 27 through 28. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This is her reward. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, and he praises her, saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. You're the best of all. Next Sunday's Mother's Day, and I'll be living the first year, the first Mother's Day, without my mother. I can honestly stand tonight, because my wife can stand, and many of you can stand, and rise up and call our mothers blessed, blessed. Because they're very much like this. All right, now back to Ephesians. That's the parallel passage. I want us to get back to Ephesians, and we're going to finish this up with this. And you'll outline there's the manner of submission, the motive of submission, and the model of submission. Now, you're not going to probably like what's fixing to happen, but uh, what I said last week is I just tell what the Scripture says and what I believe it means by what it says. And there is the manner of submission, verse 22b. Look at that. Wives, be subject to your own husband. Here is how. As to... Say it with me. As to the... Lord. Now what he's saying is this. What he's not saying is that you're to give the same devotion to your husband that you give to the Lord. What he is saying is this. That the obedience of a wife to her husband as his leader and authority is an obedience as unto Christ. That is, he obeys, she obeys because she knows this is what Christ has commanded. And it's just like this. As unto the Lord is just like this. If the Jesus himself walked up to you tonight and said, I want you, picking an illustration out of the air, I want you to quit your job and go home, would you do it? If Jesus walked up to you himself and said, I want you to do that, well, I, I, I grant, I, I bet, I bet, I wager, you know, just figuratively speaking, that everybody here would do that. He said, as unto the Lord, the wife subject to her husband. That's the model, that's the manner of it. Second, the motive of it is verse 23a. The motive of it. For as the husband is the head of the wife. That's the motive. Now, the head gives the orders and the body responds, right? Right. Now, the husband in this analogy is the head and the wife is the body. Now, so, so that your response to me may be, well, now, that's degrading. That, that the body would respond to the, to the head. That, that's it's not degrading. It's normal. It's healthy. The normal, healthy thing that is done is that the body responds to the head. A body that does not respond to the head, does not obey the head, 
is called spastic. And it's abnormal. So that the motive of submission is this, that the head is the husband and the body responds in obedience. Third, the model of submission is 23b through 24. As Christ also is the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now what is the church? The church is the body of born-again believers. Now, now how, if the church is subject to Christ, what does that, how, what does that say? What is the picture of that? Well, as a born-again believer, when Jesus did His finished work on the cross, I just responded to that. I fell under His protection and His provision and His preservation. When He finished His work on the cross, He said, it is finished. It's done. Now what was my role? What is my role as a born-again, as a Christian? To Him, my role as a Christian is to fall under His provision. Now, if, if that's not true then, then you and I have to do our share to accomplish our redemption. If there's any more that has to be done than just falling under His provision and coming under His protection and placing myself under His preservation, I believe that that is the, that is the theology of redemption, the theology of justification in the New Testament that Christ did. to find herself under His provision, under His preservation, under His protection. I'm going to tell you something. If we had that in the home, that's the God-ordained pattern. And when that happens, I believe that we'll have happier homes and we'll have godlier children and we'll have fewer divorces. Now there's one other passage of Scripture that I need to deal with tonight. And that's Genesis chapter 3, the most exciting verse that you'll find. I want you to turn to that, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Now, you, you, are, you see it there. Let me read it. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Maybe that wasn't such a good choice of words the most exciting, but I want to show you something exciting. Now, before I get to that, I want us to look back at Genesis 1, 27. Okay? 1, 27 and 28. And it says, it reads like this, And God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him, Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, He said to the couple, watch this, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He said that, He gave that command to them, to them, to, to Adam and to Eve, Underline it. Remember it. He gave that, that authority to them together. All right, now, 
what, was, what he was saying is this, that they were to be fruitful together. They were co-regents. They ruled together. They were together in this ruling, in this authority. They were co-regents. They were co-rulers. Because the principle of submission and leadership isn't visible at this point in Genesis 1. The principle of authority and submission is not visible because prior to sin, the relationship was so beautiful and so God-ordained and so pure that they multiplied together, they filled the earth together, they subdued the earth together, they ruled together. Because it wasn't even visible before sin entered, this principle of authority and submission. Now, when sin came, everything changed. By the time we get to the third chapter, sin has entered the picture. And immediately, because they sinned, they were cursed. And what you find in the third chapter, verse 16, is the pronouncement of the curse, and God's explaining it to the woman. Now watch this. Got your Bible? Now look. He said to the woman, this is the curse, to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in conception and childbirth. In other words, he's saying that the pain of childbirth was the constant reminder of, to every woman that she is the victim of sin, so that the pain of childbirth reminds the woman that she's a victim of sin. Secondly, he said, he said, the desire, he says, your desire shall be to your husband. Now that sounds like it all, that sounds right on. Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that the wife has a strong desire for her husband physically. It doesn't mean that. It does not mean that the wife has a strong desire that her husband be her authority and leader. Can't be that. For historically, watch this, it cannot be that way historically. For historically, the woman has resisted that. It cannot be that theologically, because this is the result of the curse. Now if, I mean, in the beginning... The woman is beautifully submissive and beautifully yielded to her husband and, and, and beautifully they live in this perfect fellowship and harmony. So now if there's a curse, it must be that now something's going to be different from that or it wouldn't be a curse, right? I mean, that's why. You don't have to be a nuclear scientist to figure that out. So it means that something different is happening from now on because of the curse, because of her sin. Doesn't mean she desires her husband to be her leader in authority. Well, what does it mean? Let me take the Hebrew words and look at them with you. First of all, we need to look at the word rule. Your husband will rule over you. The word rule in the Hebrew means to reign. That, that's pretty close to what we have here. In, but the Greek counterpart, the Greek counterpart of that word means to install in an office. It means to elevate to an official position. So he's saying that the husband will be installed in an office, elevated to an official position. He's saying to the woman, 
You are co-regent, you are co-ruling together. Now man is installed over you. And there's a new kind of ruling and authority that has not been known before. If you have usurped the leadership of man when you sinned in the garden, now man is going to, to rule over you. He's going to be installed in a position over you. Now we need to look at the word desire. The word desire in the Hebrew is the word tshushka. T-S-K-T-H-S-U-K-A, tushka. Now, there's one other time that that word is used in the Pentateuch. It's chapter 4, verse 7. I want you to look at it with me. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. One other time is this Hebrew word found. It's found in the seventh verse of chapter 4. Look at it. It says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. And it's, look, it's desire, there's the same word, it's desire is for you, but you must master it. Now let me tell you what Hebrew, what uh, Genesis 4, 7 says. It says, sin is crouching at the door and it desires to master you, but you must master it. Now, interestingly enough, this same word in, he, in, in Genesis 4-7, it's the exact same word in Genesis 3-16. It's the exact same grammatical construction. It's exactly the same. So that what Genesis 3-16 says is this, you shall desire to rule over your husband. You shall desire to rule over your husband. And the construction is in the linear action. It is in the movement that is progressive. And this is what it says, you shall continue to desire to control your husband. That's the result of the curse. Now, what is the answer to all of this? What's this? The answer is this, that the curse has been erased in Jesus. The curse has been erased in Jesus. Now what happened in the garden, in the curse, was erased in Jesus. I, I got to looking at this tonight, sitting back there, and just kind of got twisting, you know. It's the most exciting thing. Now watch how this thing happens. When Jesus came and lived and died, He erased the curse. So that when a person is a believer, a born-again believer, and he's living the Spirit-filled life, watch this, the wife living the Spirit-filled life, living in voluntary submission to her husband, and the husband living the Spirit-filled life, and, and he's loving his wife as Christ loved the church, and the children are living the Spirit-filled life in obedience to their parents, and the parents are living the Spirit-filled life, not provoking their children to wrath. We're right back into the garden again. And it's just like it was before the fall when that happens. It's beautiful. It's exciting. It's wonderful. I can tell you're underwhelmed. Well, look at what this means. It means that if this happens, we go back to paradise again. You want paradise in your home? You want paradise in your marriage? You want paradise with your parents? Paradise with your children? You go right back to paradise when a person voluntarily living the Spirit-filled life lives out the role God ordained. 
in the beginning. A role of mutual submission, but with regard to function and practice, the husband as the leader and the head and, and the authority in that home. I love it. Now, it seems, seems like that what, what we got, what we have, you know, and I sit down in, you know, in, 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 in marital counseling and, and share these principles with men and women, and, 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 and they, they move back, they, they resist that. Well, if I live like that, my husband would treat me like dirt. He'd walk on me. And, and, the, and the husband says, well, if I live like that, I'd have feathers on my legs. I'd be so henpecked. <laughs> Listen, God's ways are higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. As the heaven is higher than the earth, so are His ways, His thoughts, higher than ours. He knows what He's doing. And so when man and woman find that place of submission and authority and they live it out, we go back to paradise lost. We go back to paradise regained. We have paradise in the home. Marriage is paradise. It's wonderful. Well, before I get too worked up, I guess we'll quit on that. Now, what I want us to do next week, we're going to talk about the role of the husband on Mother's Day. Roll the husband on Mother's Day. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the excitement of learning your word, for the potential and the prospect of what it means to live according to divine principles, to live out the divine design. Oh, Lord, help us to find that, to live that, experience that, know that, because I pray in Jesus' name. Now I want to give an invitation tonight, an invitation for people who may need to accept Christ as their Savior. I'm sure that I never preach on Sunday, at least to people who watch on television. Maybe not in audience all the time, but at least on television. You hear it often. They've never been saved. There's a plan. This plan is that Jesus died. He he was crucified. He shed His lifeblood. He died. Our, our responsibility is just to find our place, fall under His provision. By faith, accept His finished work. By faith, accept His free gift. Maybe an opportunity for Christian people to rededicate their lives. I know it seems like if I come, it's an admission that I'm a terrible wife or a terrible husband. Not that at all. It's an admission that I want to be better in this most important role. Or maybe to join the church tonight. You'll want to come while we stand to sing. We invite you to come.